If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and... What do I even say other than, hey? (sighs) Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Nina Anisimova was a premier dancer with the Kirov Ballet, and by the 1930s, one of the most famous ballerinas in the Soviet Union. But in 1938, at the height of the Great Terror, as Stalin brutally purged dissenting members of the Communist Party, Nina was accused of counter-revolutionary crimes and transported to a forced labour camp in what is now Kazakhstan. Christina Ezrahi, a historian of Soviet-era politics and dance, has explored Nina's story in her new book, Dancing for Stalin. Our digital editor, Eleanor Evans, spoke to her to find out more. Your book tells the story of Nina Anisimova, a well-known ballerina in the Soviet Union who was arrested in 1938 for supposed counter-revolutionary activity. Before we hear more about Nina, can we hear a little from you on your work and how you came to Nina's story? So in some ways, it's a story of be careful what you wish for, um, because I always wanted to use Russian ballet as a lens on Russian history, especially a history of the Soviet period. Um, And one day I was sitting in an archive in St. Petersburg, um, working on the private files of a very well-known dancer of the Stalin period, period, when I suddenly um, saw in the catalogue a file with the name contact between artists and foreign diplomats and it was dated uh, Leningrad 1938 and as a historian I knew this is the year of the great terror when contact between Soviet citizens and foreigners could mean a death sentence very easily. 
So I ordered up this file from um, the depository um, and when it appeared on my desk, um, it actually had a big heading which said um, not to be given out um, to anyone in the reading room, um, but it had been done. Um, I was lucky. I looked at it um, and basically stumbled upon Nina's story. Um, she was, as you mentioned, a very famous dancer of the Stalin period. And according to my knowledge, she had had a very solid, happy career, um, lived a fairly long life. I didn't know that anything out of the ordinary had happened to her. Um, but there was a list of names in this folder of denunciation notes, um, about 30 names, including very well-known dancers and conductors. Um, and they had all received little ticks. But five names had been crossed out. Um, one of them was Nina's, and I didn't know any of the other names who had been crossed out. So this really sparked my interest to find out what had happened to these five people who had crossed from this list. So I started on a long journey to find out what had happened back then. <laughs> right, a, a, lo a long journey indeed. And and I wonder if you can um, introduce us to Nina um before her arrest, before well, what was the place of her in the society and the place of ballet in the wake of the October Revolution? So the reason why I'm so interested in using ballet as a lens, as a lens on Russian history is that I really think of all the art forms, ballet is probably the one most closely associated with Russia. Um, and it's played an unusually... Uh, central role, um, especially throughout the 20th century. Um, so ballet was actually imported to Russia um, by the Tsars, um, like many other things, um, in the 18th century. Um, but very soon, this import, foreign import, took on a dynamics of its own. And the Tsars, they really um, lavished their support on the imperial ballet when ballet in Western Europe started to be in decline. So if you think about 19th century ballet in Paris, um, things were not so easy at the opera, while in St. Petersburg, um, there were splendid conditions um, for dancers and choreographers. So Marius Petitpas, um, the creator of the biggest classics, household names that anyone will know, like Swan Lake, Sleeping Beauty. Um, he went to St. Petersburg um, and really made the St. Petersburg Ballet into what we nowadays still understand as classical ballet. And then the revolution happened. Um, and for the communists, um, ballet was really seen as a very decadent after-dinner entertainment for the elites. Um, because, of course, um, men, successful men, like beautiful women. There were the young dancers of the Marinsky and, for example, the last Tsar, Nicholas II, very famously before he got married, had an affair with Matilda Kshysinskaya. So some of the ballerinas um, who had lovers who were grand dukes, um, they would dance in their own jewelry, even though they were not supposed to do that. So there was definitely the incredible artistic side, but there was also this um, high society, close links to the aristocracy, somewhat decadent side. So the communists um, initially said there will be no place for classical ballet in the new society we are trying to build. Um, but then they realized, um, they really uh, very early on realized the power of art. And that really was the predicament um, for artists under the Soviet regime that on the one hand, they had a regime that actually realized how powerful art can be. Um, but with uh, that realization also came the fear that if art expresses ideas, um, 
not close to the regime, that it would be dangerous. Um, so right after the re revolution, um, the communists tried to make all the arts accessible to the regular people. So they opened up the theaters, they gave out free tickets. And much to the dismay of some of them, um, what had the largest success with hungry workers in revolutionary Petrograd were actually the old classical ballets and not the revolutionary theater and propaganda pieces. So they began to realize that they really have something very powerful here and began to hope that if they could only start infusing the old classical ballet with um, their new communist ideology, they would have a very powerful propaganda tool because, of course, in revolutionary Russia, we're talking about a society that is still to a large extent illiterate. So they needed um, something that even people who can't read will understand. Um, and so you ended up with, with this completely paradox situation of having the most empirical of all art forms turning into the most Soviet of all, all art forms in many ways. And in this world, Nina has a particular talent for character dance. Now, I, I didn't know what, what this was before reading reading your book. I've been watching some videos before this chat. Can can you explain to our listeners what uh, Nina's rise in this world and what her particular talent for this art form was? Yes, well, that is also a very uh, crucial point to why Nina is such a good um, vehicle for talking about the predicament of artists in the Soviet Union. So in classical ballet, I, I, I hope a lot of the listeners would be familiar, for example, with Swan Lake. So in a lot of these classics, um, you have so-called character dances, which are national dances, which are supposed to give local color to the ballet. So think... Spanish dances, Hungarian dances, Polish dances, and not danced on point, um, but usually for the women in heels, um, shoes with a slight kind of thick heel. And in 19th century classical ballet, um, these character dances were very important. They were an intrinsic part of these ballets, but they were, of course, always playing a secondary role compared to the classical ballerinas. And now when... The Russian classical ballet found itself under this predicament uh, with the new Soviet regime. Um, the authorities were constantly extolling the companies. You have to become more democratic. You have to spread our propaganda messages. But uh, if you imagine a ballerina in a tutu, um, how, how are you going to bring the communist message across? Um, so character dance, um, especially in the 1930s, started to be seen as a as the perfect vehicle for classical ballet to use something that's intrinsic to it, uh, these dances, but by giving the character dances a much more prominent role to make Russian ballets turn it into Soviet ballet and make it appear much more democratic because those folk dances, those national dances, were supposedly based on the folk dances that ordinary people were performing. And Nina um, was the most talented young character dancer. And especially in the mid-1930s, when there started to be an ever-tightening um, grip on Soviet culture, um, all the art forms were extolled to produce socialist realist art, but nobody knew what that actually meant. Uh, this, was, this was much easier in literature where you were supposed to follow certain plots, but if you tell a musician you have to compose in a socialist realist way or a dancer, it wasn't quite clear what they should do. So um, Shostakovich, um, the famous Russian composer, he uh, actually um, 
worked with a very experimental avant-garde choreographer, but who was very much based in the classical tradition on a ballet called The Bright Stream. And at first, Soviet ballet thought they had finally found the right vehicle. The plot of the ballet was set on a collective farm um, in the Don, uh, the river basin of the River Don. And there were collective farmers, there were artists, it was a comedy, the music was lovely, the dancers were lovely. And then ideology struck down on this ballet in a big editorial in the party newspaper Pravda and basically said, this is all total nonsense. Um, it's false. It's dolls we see on stage and not real Soviet people. So the ballet theater got so frightened that they thought, okay, so we're not going to do ballets on point. We are actually going to try to do a ballet just based on character dance. Um, and Nina got the lead role in this part. It was the first time that the ballerinas were standing in the wings, watching this character dancer taking center stage. And can you tell us a little more about this this particular ballet that Nina finds herself in? Um, so uh, this particular ballet was about um, a young woman um, in the region of the River Don in southern Russia, um, uh, in, 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 amongst the Cossacks. Um, and she is supposed to get married to someone who is a rich local Cossack and she doesn't want to and basically joins um, the revolutionaries um, and becomes a partisan fighter. So that is what this ballet was about, which um, built on her success, which was really her breakthrough as a young young dancer in a different ballet called The Flames of Paris, um, which was a ballet set uh, during the time of the French Revolution uh, Reportedly, it turned into Stalin's favorite ballet. Um, it had its premiere in the early 1930s. And there, Nina was initially supposed to just play a small part, but um, she had so much charisma and was such a fiery person that she ended up um, really taking a very central role, um, culminating in her waving the tricolor flag high over her head, marching down the stage of the Marinsky, then Kirov Ballet, and with the whole corps de ballet and chorus following her. So she was really battling for the revolution, and then she gets shot in the ballet and dies a martyr for the revolution. So her career was looking good. <laughs> Yes, it sounds like her career was looking very good. And so she's in this world, She's um, her career is flying, she's well known. How then does she come to be arrested at this time when she's uh, in this ballet? So uh, we are talking about um, the beginning of 1938. Um, that was the time when she was arrested, which was a few months after the Great Terror started. Um, their repressions became a part of daily Soviet life um, from the outset of the revolution, really. Um, so repression really went in waves, uh, some were worse than others, but the most infamous one is arguably uh, the time of the Great Terror in 1937-1938, when uh, the regime actually set arrest quotas. Um, so instead of saying arrest whoever is suspect, they gave all the different localities quotas that had to be fulfilled, like an industrial plan. It was also the time of industrialization, so suddenly repression became an industrialized target as well. And, of course, all the different secret police officers across the country uh, were very eager to show their loyalty to, to the regime, so they started over-fulfilling the norms and arresting more and more people. Now, Nina, and that also is again connected to the complicated role of ballet in, in society, especially communist society, 
Um, there have always been ballet domains, people who uh, are just crazy about ballet. Now, in 19th century St. Petersburg, that meant when a famous ballerina called Maria Taglioni came to visit, some of the fans got hold of her old point shoes, cooked them and ate them. So you really have these kind of crazy admirers. Now, in the Soviet period, the more regular candidates for that would actually also be party bosses who supported the ballet. But in, in Leningrad, there was also an employee of the German consulate who was actually Russian-German um, with an aristocratic background. So already somebody who would have been suspect to the regime. And he really loved the ballet. He had stayed in Russia after the revolution but had decided um, to take German citizenship, which, of course, by definition, made him very suspect. Um, and since he was working for the German consulate, he, has, uh, he had access to rare goods, um, uh, to food, to alcohol, uh, lipstick, um, tights, and um, things like that. And he started uh, throwing parties at his flat where he invited a lot of artists, um, a lot of dancers. We're talking, you know, 20, 30 dancers um, from the different theaters, conductors as well, some actors. But his special love was the ballet. So, I mean, probably almost half the company would have been at the flat of this guy at one point or the other. And um, in the Soviet Union, relations with foreigners were also by definition suspect. And especially uh, once Hitler came to power in Germany, um, uh, suddenly all these dancers of the Kirov Theater were consorting with somebody from an enemy nation. And inside every theater, inside every institution, inside every communal flat in the Soviet Union, you had informers. Um, so the authorities, um, they were aware that there was this person from the German consulate inviting dancers. And if you think about um, secret police officers desperately trying to uh, compile a list of people who should be arrested, of course, this was the perfect story for them. Sometimes they fabricated things completely out of the blue or their stories of the man who delivered the weather report to the German consul being arrested or the veterinarian who treated dogs from the Polish embassy being arrested. But here you actually had a large group of dancers who went to the flat of this guy regularly and received presents. Um, so uh, this was known to the secret police, um, probably because of informers inside the theater. Um, and then also, I mean, the denunciation notes that I came across in the archives, the problem at the time was um, if you didn't report, you were also immediately suspect. So I think the dancer who wrote the note that I stumbled across, um, she was also suspect because she had also been to these parties. And if you then ask for the secret police, give the names, give the names, you will give the names because you can assume if these are parties of 30 people, somebody else would have been asked the same question. Um, so Nina was arrested. But of course, I mean, all of this is clear to us in hindsight. She at the moment was already living in a complete climate of fear because this is the time of the Great Terror when every night um, the dark cars of the secret police are haunting the backyards um, of those large Leningrad apartment blocks to make arrests. Arrests were mostly done at night. So people hear the secret police uh, coming up the staircases, knocking against the doors. So it's already a climate of fear. People around her have been arrested. And now the knock can be heard at her door. 
pretty terrifying stuff. Um, and, and you do write about um, various methods of, of interrogation or ways of extracting denunciations or, or quote, confessions. What, what's, what, does Nina, what does Nina put through straight up and what's her reaction to the, these allegations? Well, I mean, that is one thing which I really found quite extraordinary. So uh, the only traces we have left um, of these interrogations are the interrogation protocols. And very often they were falsified. Um, sometimes you would be able to just find a page of confessions that's signed and that's it. Um, but in Nina's case, um, there are protocols of the interrogations um, with her commentary <laughs> because after the interrogations... Um, she was asked to sign. Um, and she really, uh, I mean, she was such a brave woman. I mean, also as a performer, she just, she was full of fire, full of temperament. And even during those secret police interrogations, um, uh, she stood up and basically Claire said, I'm innocent. This is all nonsense. This is all lies. And there's one very, very uh, touching, uh, very sad uh, document um, in her file, which basically records a confrontation um, she was put through with a colleague of hers, a dancer, Andre Levanyonok, who had been arrested before her. Um, and they are put across the table from each other and asked questions. And it's very clear that Levanyonok had already been broken at that point. Um, so he has nothing to lose. Um, he was probably hoping to save his life um, by collaborating with the secret police. And he basically uh, sits opposite Nina and says that, yes, uh, they went to this employee of the German consulate. They had counter-revolutionary conversations and they were approving of the murder of Kirov, um, Stalin's big rival who had been assassinated in Leningrad. They were hoping for war where Nazi Germany would win. And they were trying to spread these ideas um, amongst their acquaintances. Now, this already to us nowadays sounds absolutely awful. But what I think Levan Yonok was trying to do is um, he was hoping to be sent to a labor camp for maybe 10 years for anti-Soviet ag agitation as opposed to being shot as a spy because both he and Nina had been arrested on suspicion of espionage for Nazi Germany. So you have to imagine Nina sitting already after several weeks in prison opposite a former colleague who says these things to her face. And her response was, these are total lies. I never said anything against the regime and neither did Levanyonok. And I find this so incredibly brave um, to actually not just defend her own innocence, but also to defend the innocence of the person who's actually accusing you to your face um, in a secret police office um, during Stalin's times is really, I mean, it's a proof of extraordinary character. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. So Nina is transported across the Soviet Union in really impossible conditions. I mean, just to survive the transport to the labor camps um, was, I mean, <laughs> almost impossible. Um, uh, people were stuffed together in cattle wagons, um, uh, almost no food, almost no water. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. 
Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger, talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Yes, indeed. And in the face of, of so much pressure as well. Um so what is the consequence then of, you know, uh, Levin Yonuk does denounce her, she denies it, but then what what happens next despite this? Well, it didn't help poor Levin Yonuk, who got shot um, as a spy, um, even though in court he tried to protest his innocence and said that he had been forced um, to confess. Um, but Nina, miraculously, her life is saved. Um, and here comes the deus ex machina, um, her boyfriend, her lover, um, Konstantin Derjavin, um, who was actually not her husband at the time. Um, and when Nina got arrested, he just decided to stand by her side and to try to prove to the secret police that there was no way that she had committed any uh, political crimes. Um, and this, again, is abso- absolutely extraordinary because we're, again, talking about a time here when people are getting arrested left and right. And everybody knows um, that one arrest often f- leads to many other arrests and they start distancing themselves from friends, from family, even from s- beloved spouses. And Kostya, who at the time was Nina's boyfriend, he decides to take on the secret police, which was really a suicide mission. But uh, somehow um, he, I do think it was probably thanks to his um, tireless intercession walking around um, different offices that she, in the end, doesn't get shot as a spy, um, uh, but she gets declared a socially uh, dangerous um, element and she gets sentenced to five years in a labor camp. Right. Uh, And before we um, hear a little more on Nina's um experiences in in the the gulag i wonder if we could uh touch on uh, those letters between her and kostya which are throughout your account because they do paint a remarkable picture of their relationship can you give us a bit of a sense of their correspondence 
Uh, yes, I mean, that was also uh, really uh, quite a coincidence. So after I had stumbled upon this um, secret enunciation note, I started to Google. I mean, that's what we do nowadays. So I Googled in different languages to see whether I could find anything um, about uh, Nina's arrest. Um, because at that point, I was uh, supposing that she had been arrested since she was on that list and her name had been crossed out. And I found a little note in a... A specialist magazine for stamp collectors, for philatelists, um, about Nina's letters uh, from the Gulag. Um, so I contacted the person who had published this article in the specialist magazine, and he had a, he had come across uh, Nina's letters from the labor camp in the 1990s um, and acquired them. And this was really an extraordinary stroke of luck because. Those gulag uh, correspondences, of course, I mean, there were so many uh, people imprisoned in the camps, but uh, not many of these letters um, have uh, survived. Or if they have survived, um, they're very often just a lifeline um, because uh, people, if they were allowed to correspond with their relatives, they were also usually allowed to receive packages with food um, and clothes. Um, but Nina's letter letters to Kostya, they are really also a record of what it was like for an artist um, to be imprisoned in a camp. Um, and since Kostya was also a man of the theater, it also shows how culture continued to be such a strong bond between Nina, who has lost her life, who is imprisoned in a camp, and Kostya, who is able to continue his old life in the world of theater um, back in Leningrad. Um, so it's really, I mean, it's really remarkable, um, the letters that she wrote. Um, and then also later on, uh, without wanting to give too much away during uh, the war, Kostya ends up um, in the besieged city of Leningrad, while Nina has already been evacuated to the Ural Mountains with the theater. And there's also the wartime correspondence between Kostya from the siege of Leningrad and Nina. And again, I mean, these letters are just a remarkable testimony of their private love uh, before this um, backdrop of continuing historical atrocities. Yes, it's a really fascinating trove. I, I love reading their words to one another. Um, and so uh, if we take a step back again then, so uh, Nina is transported. She ends up in a place called Karlag, which is in today's Kazakhstan. Um, what can you tell us about her experiences of being transported and the life that she um, finds herself in at this camp? So Nina is transported across the Soviet Union in really impossible conditions. I mean, just to survive the transport to the labor camps, um, was, I mean, <laughs> almost impossible. Um, uh, people were stuffed together in cattle wagons, um, uh, almost no food, almost no water, um, hygiene uh, non-existent. Um, but she makes it. Uh, she makes it to Kazakhstan and she makes it to Karlag, uh, which was one of the largest camps in the Gulag. We're talking about a camp here the size of Belgium. So it's absolutely gigantic. Um Nina arrives there and her big hope is, and this is again something which shows the very unusual and complex place of culture in Soviet society. Um, these labor camps, uh, they were also intimately linked to uh, Stalin's project of industrialization. So when uh, Stalin decided to industrialize um, in the late 1920s, 
he decided not just to collectivize agriculture as well, but uh, to really change the whole uh, penal system across the Soviet Union and to use uh, prisoners' um, forced labor to extract all the raw materials that he needed so desperately for industrialization. And these raw materials were mostly in areas um, of the vast Soviet empire, which were basically not inhabitable. So we're talking about the Soviet Far East, um, Far North, um, Kazakhstan as well. And he builds these, they, the regime builds these uh, humongous uh, labor camps, uh, which are really uh, part of the industrial complex. But um, the Soviets also had this ideology of re-education. So unlike the Nazi concentration camps, even if the outcome in the Soviet camps was often death, um, they were actually not extermination camps. Um, the ideological idea behind it was... Um, that if you work well, you can somehow redeem yourself. Again, the difference might sometimes seem somewhat academic because circumstances were so impossible, but there was this idea. And since there was this idea of re-education, there were re-education departments within the labor camps and part of the re-education um, departments were also in charge of culture. The culture is we understand it, uh, which was supposed to serve the purpose of re-education. So we're talking about theater, wallpapers and ensembles um but they also had a small kind of uh, dance uh, choir or theater groups and um, that the prisoners um uh, could sometimes join but the camps also had some of the larger ones like Karlak had proper camp theaters um and these camp theaters are really very odd creatures because on the one hand they operated uh, within the auspices of these cultural re-education departments. So they were supposed to re-educate prisoners, but um, actually their main purpose was to uh, entertain the board, uh, secret police official officials running these camps who were stuck somewhere in the middle of nowhere and who didn't want to give up on entertainment altogether. And as there was also a large number of the cultural elites who were being arrested at the time, there were some uh, camp commanders, a very famous theater, for example, was in Magadan, um, who really took pride in building uh, these prisoner theaters. Um, now, this sounds very, uh, very uh, absurd or cruel to our ears, but um, for the artists, um, this was also a way to survive um, because artists within the camps, I mean, you, you have to imagine these camps were really a mirror of Soviet society at large. Uh, so whatever social hierarchies you had outside the camps, they were somewhat replicated inside the camps as well. So uh, the artists had a privileged position and they uh, had higher food ra rations, uh, rations um, they sometimes had better sleeping conditions. And most of all, they didn't have to do forced labor at minus 40 degrees with their bare hands. Um, so Nina arrives in the camp and it's almost winter. Uh, Kazakhstan has a very extreme continental climate. Um, and in one of her letters, she uh, describes it's minus 40 degrees outside. She has no winter clothes because on the transport, whatever she could take, a lot of it was probably stolen by the criminals um, who were tra transported together with the political prisoners. So she's sitting there without winter clothes. She's writing to Kostya and you feel that she's kind of given up. She doesn't know yet what work um, she's going to be assigned to. So the letter, it was written uh, New Year's Eve. Um, and you can really sense that she is in a desperate existential place. But as she writes to Kostya, 
she suddenly starts saying, you know, if I manage to work in my profession, then there's hope because um, for her, um, she writes, I cannot live just to survive. I can only live in order to create. Um, and she's lucky. Uh, she gets assigned um, to the Cultural Brigade of Karl Lag and ends up uh, performing in the camp theatre. Yes, and though you've mentioned that that does give her access to certain privileges, there's no um, denying that this this existence in the camp is still immensely hard. Um, and something that struck me was how... Uh, I, I know what you're saying about her sort of her sense of um, giving up at some points, but she also seems to remain fairly positive in many of the letters that she writes to her family. Um, and what, what can you say about this sort of um, enforced jauntiness or the, the, the picture that she sort of portrays to her family when she's writing to her mother, her sister and her, her dog? <laughs> <laughs> yes, she had a beloved dog whom she also always mentions in her letters who was very mischievous and uh, behaving very badly and I think her mother was very fed up with the dog so there's <laughs> always kind of the worry about that. Well, I mean, I think, uh, first of all, all of these letters had to go through camp uh, censorship so she cannot uh, write um, what is really going on. She can only imply it in between. For example, in one of the letters she writes, oh, Remember back in Leningrad, I used to, uh, I don't know, complain all the time about this or that. But here, even my heart pains that I sometimes used to get, I don't even get them here anymore. And of course, at first reading, this might sound strange, but I think she's actually trying to signal to her family that the situation is so dire that even whatever heart troubles she might have had, she simply does not have the space to think about it because she's now at the point where it's about survival. Um, at the same time, she's an incredibly positive person, an incredibly strong person, and her art uh, is really a way for her and her thoughts, her dreams about what she might be able to do in future to stay alive because these camps uh, were also designed in a way to really uh, break people as human beings, to make them forget that they are human and art and artistic creation is probably one of the things that really distinguishes us from other animals. Um, so for her to continue thinking about her art and then dancing in the theater, it's also a way to remind her of her own humanity and to give her hope. Um, so I think the fact that she was able to perform in the camps, that's really, it's a lifeline for her. It's a psychological lifeline. It's an actual physical lifeline because of certain privileges. Um, and I also think for someone like her to uh, survive this whole history and to go back to the Kirov um, and continue her career as if nothing had happened, First of all, you need a person for that who simply has this extraordinary power to remain optimistic and to just keep going. Um, I mean, uh, Nina, after she gets freed later on, she's back on stage six weeks after her release from, from prison in a soloist part. Um, again, not a classical ballerina on point, but still in a soloist part on the stage of the Kirov. Um, so, and this return... It's, of course, an, an incredible testimony to her own personal strength, but also to the theater um, that took her back, to the director of the theater who took her, knowing her story, but accepting 
the line that she gave him is she kept it a secret that she had been in the camps. She just came with an official paper that said that she had been in prison for the entire time in Leningrad and there were no questions asked and no more mention in her personal files. So the theater also was really extraordinary, I have to say. Mm. Yes, incredible strength and clearly something that gave her incredible strength as well. Um, if we can take a step back a second to um, when she was in the camps, it, as you say, it's a really chilling detail that um, people were performing for their, you know, the, the people who were imprisoning them. Um, and I think it, it's something that was really sort of macabre was that she um, writes to Kostya asking for some of her costumes to be sent to her in the camp so she can perform. And we must remember Kostya is, is there in Leningrad still um, petitioning for her release. How does that come about? Yeah, I mean, this is something which I also found quite extraordinary because it's just it's not just uh, Nina's case. It's the story of a lot of the artists who were imprisoned uh, in the camps and who ended up uh, being recruited into these uh, performance brigades. Um, because on the one hand, the camps wanted them to perform, but um, they also kind of wanted them to organize uh, I mean, in, in later years, some of these camp theatres were really uh, quite uh, well funded. Uh, but when Nina was there, so she's supposed to perform for her prisoners um, who then, uh, you know, big secret police boss of the camp inviting the local party bigwigs and showing off his artists to them. So she is also under the constant pressure of having to please her audience who are her jailers and of renewing her repertoire she can't go there and dance every day the same thing um and uh, as a performer she also needs a costume so she writes to Kostya and she really asks him to send fabrics that she can uh, produce her own costumes to send sheet music to send this to send that so it's really i mean it's completely macabre because She's in a camp struggling for her survival, but she has to perform for her jailers. So she's asking Kostya to, in addition to the vitals she needs for surviving, sending extra food and clothes to also send costumes. Um, but what I also found quite touching, because one of the items that she took with her on her transport, a transport from Leningrad to the camp were her castanets. Um, Nina was very known for her Spanish dances um, and she took these tiny castanets, you know, these little instruments you attach to your fingers that make a little clicking sound. She took them with her to the camp and she carried them with her wherever she went inside the camp. Um, she had a little bag and she had inside her most valued possessions um, a mug to drink from, some dried bread rusks, um, probably her spoon um, and her castanets. So this is really quite extraordinary. Um, but at least in the case of Nina, she had been in touch with Kostya. I've come across memoirs of artists imprisoned in the camps who were actually not allowed to correspond with their families um, because they had been charged for more serious political crimes. And then suddenly they would be recruited for the camp theater and they would be allowed to write one letter. And then in this one letter, they suddenly write, I'm alive. Can you please send me a lipstick and my uh, dress that I used to wear when performing in God knows where? So, I mean, this must have been even more jarring to the family members. Yes, absolutely. I can't imagine having receiving a letter like that. And and so 
Nina's existence then, it's again, it's very hard to imagine. Um, What is Kostya doing um, outside beyond obviously supporting her with letters and and, um, things he can send to her? How is he supporting her? So, uh, of course, sending those letters um, to Kostya from Karl Lag, and especially uh, when she was still on the transport from Leningrad, from the prison to Karl Lag, those letters arrived sometimes with quite a long uh, time uh, time delay, um, so sometimes because of censorship or God knows why. So Nina, initially, when she arrives in Karlag, um, she thinks that uh, she's actually not supposed to stay there. She's actually supposed to be transported to another camp. Um, which would have been bad um, because any camp further away would have been probably in the far north under even more difficult conditions. So uh, she writes a letter to Kostya um, after she's been in Kaulag or I mean the kind of transit camp attached to it um, for a few weeks. And she says, I'm about to be put on a long distance transport. And that's the last letter he gets for a while. So Kostya is sitting in Leningrad. He has no idea where Nina is because he thinks that she's actually been put onto another train um, into the complete unknown. Um, He doesn't know that Nina was actually, which is also quite extraordinary, she was actually pulled off the transport um, at the last moment. She had already been put on another train And last minute, somebody came and called her name and took her off uh, the transport, which I think is also, again, uh, related to Kostya's behind-the-scene machinations, because nobody locally in Kazakhstan would have had the power to take her off the transport. Um, This had to be done uh, through Moscow. So Kostya thinks that he's running against walls and that whatever he's doing is not leading anywhere. But we now know that whatever he was doing was actually helping Nina because she got pulled off this long distance transport and got to stay in Kazakhstan. Um, But Kostya doesn't realize that. So he's sitting in Leningrad. um, It's again, uh, the new year has just begun and he has no news. He has no idea whether Nina is still alive. And He feels he has nothing to lose. He sits down and he writes a long letter to the secret police, 14 typed pages, basically again saying that the secret police is wrong, which is completely suicidal. Um, But Kostya, a man of the theater, had impeccable theatrical and also political timing because he sends this letter exactly at the moment um, when the head of the Soviet secret police, Yezhov, um, gets arrested himself. Well, first he gets demoted and somebody else takes over, but Yezhov is about to get arrested and to get shot as a spy himself. And a new person is supposed to take over as leader of the Soviet secret police, Lavrenti Beria. And so Kostya's letter arrives exactly at a moment when there's a change in the power structures. Uh, The Great Terror is about to be ended officially. And uh, the regime decides, once the new bigwig is in place, that they will look for a handful of cases that they will reopen um, to prove that Yezhov, the predecessor of secret police chief, uh, Beria, has done mistakes. So Kostya's letter lands on the desk of the Leningrad secret police at exactly this political moment. 
And Nina's story seems perfect um, because she had not been convicted of a high political crime, but had just been declared a socially dangerous element. Um, uh, she's a well-known dancer. She's not a political figure. So her profile fits like a glove um, to the profile that the secret police is looking for. So uh, Kostya was incredibly brave and they were also simply very, very lucky. Yes, many factors of fortune there coming together. Um, and, and, and so, as you've already said, Nina is, is released remarkably. Six weeks later, she finds herself um, back on stage, which seems remarkable. What can you say about uh, her, um, her life and how she was known about how she felt about her return to her former life? Well, I mean, I think before that, what I would also like to mention, because that also ties into this question, um, at Karlag, Nina was, of course, not just performing for her jailers. She was also performing for her fellow prisoners. And I think that this is also something that probably enabled her to return so quickly to the stage, because uh, these performers inside the camps played an absolutely crucial role for the other prisoners um, uh, to give them a moment of uh, release, to give them the feeling, to remind them of their former lives when they were still free, to give them a sense of their own humanity. So this is also, I think, what is so special about the role of artists within the Soviet Union, that yes, on the one hand, the regime constantly tried to use them, but in reality, it's the relationship between the artists and their audiences um, that was so incredibly powerful and that you could really, even shortly after communism collapsed, um, you could still feel that in Russian theaters, a very, very special connection between the performers and the audiences. So this is also something which helped the audience survive this very difficult life, but which also really gave the artists a sense of how important their art is to everyone. So Nina returns to the stage uh, six weeks after her release, and she's again immediately embraced. Um, she was also a choreographer, which was quite unusual because choreography, even today, now today um, I mean, now there are more and more female choreographers who are given opportunities to stage their work. But back then, it still used to be something very much um, under male control. And, and Nina is a choreographer as well. And she uh, has a stage partner with whom she performs a lot, but they also stage their own uh, solo evenings. Um, and a few months, two months after she's released from prison, she again uh, stages one of these solo performance evenings with her partner and she's embraced by the audiences and she's embraced by her colleagues and her career continues. Um, and what is really extraordinary, um, unfortunately for her life in the Soviet Union, um, Turned, uh, took another turn for its worse, and when uh, for the worse, when Nazi Germany invaded um, the Soviet Union, um, and Leningrad very soon is surrounded. Um, Nina and the theater get evacuated to the Ural Mountains, um, and again, <laughs> this is really extraordinary because the Soviet Union, Stalin, he had received so many warnings that Germany was about to invade and he didn't believe any of them. Um, he thought it's all fake news and didn't believe it. And then the Germans invade and suddenly um, they, just, they, they realized they had to evacuate uh, industry, uh, the government um, behind, I mean, much, much further east um, if they didn't want to be uh, captured um, by the Germans. 
But what the Soviet regime decided was not to, to not just evacuate industry and politics, and, but also culture. So the Kirov theater is saved um, because it is seen just like big factories as something that's really vital uh, to Soviet identity and that needs to be saved. Um, but that also meant that these artists um, and the theaters very much felt that they needed to prove um, that they had actually been worth saving. Um, and uh, Nina finds herself in the curious position that uh, she is a former political prisoner. Um, she's been to the camps, um, but uh, suddenly she is put in charge of uh, several uh, kind of wartime propaganda evenings the Kirov puts on for uh, local audiences. Um, and this helps her to actually uh, really uh, start pushing her own career as a choreographer because um, she ends up together with Kostya. And that's also very touching in her letters um, that she writes to Kostya from the camp. She has this dream that maybe one day she will get out and she will stage a big, beautiful ballet about Kazakh uh, shepherds and beautiful Kazakh girls. Um, and when she gets out, Kostya, he's a writer himself, um, and Nina, they start working on a ballet together with a very famous Soviet composer, Aram Khachaturian. And this ballet will actually turn into the biggest wartime premiere of the Kirov Theater in, in evacuation, uh, Gayane, producing also one of the kind of <laughs> top 10 <laughs> hits of classical music, um, the Sabre Dance, uh, which is very famous. So that was actually uh, Nina's, um, Nina's choreography, um, the former political prisoner suddenly uh, back center stage. Uh, yes. And well, I hadn't heard of the Sabre Dance. And as soon as I listened to it ahead of this interview again, I knew it straight away. So I encourage listeners, if if you uh, don't recognise the name, please do go and, and listen to it, because I'm sure you will have heard it before. And it's remarkable to sort of link that that popular um, piece of music to, to Nina's remarkable story. Um, and so it's obviously uh, such a tumultuous um, time for Nina that she lives through and she does it with huge resilience and courage um, and it's it, her account is just remarkable and it's it's all in your book and I wonder if we can um, perhaps begin to wrap up with uh, hearing your sense of Nina's legacy and and particularly her embrace of art in these camps and at this time what that means. Well, you know, I was uh, writing uh, the sections about her time uh, in as a gulag performer during the pandemic, um, uh, during the first lockdown um, uh, and subsequent lockdowns. <laughs> and I have to say, of course, also at the time, people started to talk a lot about uh, resilience, the resilience that we need during moments like that, um, about mental health. Um, and I really thought, well, first of all, of course, it put uh, things into perspective, um, reading about what she had gone through and what she had survived. Um, but it also made me think, I mean... Uh, Art is sometimes treated as a step uh, stepchild. Also, if you look at our education systems, it's something which is fairly low priority very often. But at moments of really existential crisis like this, um, whether we're talking about Nina in the camps and her prisoner audiences, um, but I think also in extreme crises nowadays, this can really be a, such a tool um, 
for feeling that there's something positive um, for giving joy because I mean one of the most fundamental purposes of art is to give joy to ordinary human beings and that is what she did in the camps and I think that's something that we also very much need uh, nowadays and especially also if I think about the next generation I remember there were these remarkable uh, YouTube clips um, uh, taken in Italy about big apartment buildings where neighbors during the lockdown were standing on their balconies making music together. And I think if we can impart on the next generation the love uh, for immediate performance that's not taped, uh, that's not shared, um, that's not edited, that's not judged, but to just live in the moment and to perform, then this is something, then that's really a gift. That was Christina Ezrahi, Dancing for Stalin, a dancer's story of courage and survival in Soviet Russia. It's published by Elliot and Thompson and is out now. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Tune in again tomorrow when Rachel Hurdley will be peering into the curious history of Windows. Are you enjoying the History Extra podcast and want to delve a bit deeper into history? Why not take out a subscription for BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine, and receive a brand new book of your choice worth £25. Choose from either Powers and Thrones by Dan Jones, a signed edition, The Anglo-Saxons by Mark Morris, Crown and Scepter by Tracy Borman, or Soldiers by Max Hastings. Your subscription includes delivery of every issue right to your door. Receive all of this for just £22.45 every six issues. To take advantage of this fantastic offer, visit our official online store at buysubscriptions.com forward slash myhistorybook. This promotion is only available for UK residents and while stocks last. See our website for further details. Overseas subscription prices are available online.